Welcome to Upstream Downstream, a lively civil discussion devoted to the political, policy, and cultural topics that often divide us. Upstream Downstream is presented by the Stubblefield Institute for Civil Political Communications at Shepherd University in cooperation with WSHC-FM. Here's your host, David Welch. Welcome to Upstream Downstream. Never before have there been so many political and policy issues that revolve around science, and not just the science of COVID and vaccines. These issues also include energy, environment, climate, and much more. With Earth Day having just happened earlier this month, today we'll be focusing on the environmental side of things. Here to talk with us today about the role of science in government is Craig McLean. He has served as the acting chief scientist of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, headquartered in Silver Spring, Maryland. He will continue to serve as assistant administrator for oceanic and atmospheric research. The mission of NOAA is to understand and predict changes in climate, weather, oceans, and coasts, to share that knowledge and information, and to conserve and manage coastal and marine ecosystems and resources. Craig, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. I'm going to guess that the average person doesn't know that NOAA is actually America's seventh uh, uniformed service. What's the broad mission of NOAA, and why is what NOAA does vital to national and world interests? Well, you certainly are correct that many people don't recognize NOAA with a commissioned service, but certainly the agency itself doesn't have as large a profile as the impact of the agency is on a day-to-day basis for Americans. The NOAA mission, NOAA being the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, has been around since 1970. It was created from at least three previous agencies that go back to the very first science agency in the United States government, and that was something that was called the Coast Survey. With science and engineering, the country created the earliest versions of land maps and nautical charts in order to promote safe navigation and economic prosperity for the nation. So fast forward to 1970 when NOAA was created, we handle how many fish are in the sea. That's a tough question. Not many people can answer that, and we do our best. But that means how do we manage the nation's marine resources? So as an oceanography agency, NOAA is responsible for the conservation and management of marine resources, including the fisheries, all over the country and throughout the United States area of exclusive economic zone. Next question we handle that's really tough. What's the weather going to be like tomorrow? And that is us. That is NOAA and the National Weather Service. We provide the forecast largely for the safety of life and property of American citizens, but it's not really our focus to say, are we going to have a sunny day out at Ocean City tomorrow so much as can we keep people safe and can they understand the impact of our forecasts and respond to them smartly? Then we have the question of what's the weather going to be like 10, 15, 100 years from now, and that's climate. Climate is weather over time. What is the prevailing expectation of weather over time? And we have, since we were created in 1970, been responsible for understanding what the relationship is between the atmosphere and the ocean. And that is what we know today is climate science. We've been working at that for 50 years. We know it quite well, and we really are the nation's premier climate science and understanding of science agency. Then the last thing is coastal zone management. Do we really wisely build in our coastal areas and understand the consequences? And that's a major part of what the agency does as well managing the activity on the nation's coast. So we're all atmosphere, all oceans, from the sun to the bottom and deepest parts of the sea. 
I can guarantee you that on our question list today was not how many fishes there are in the sea. So how many are there? I'll give you a variable from a lot to a whole lot. <laughs> there we you go. We constantly have to look at that. <laughs> we, we constantly have to look at that because things are changing. And when I say things are changing, the environment that we operate in, let's just say, for example, the ocean. The ocean is subject to the influences of human activity, fishing, pollution, changing the way the ecosystem is naturally occurring. So we're altering, because we have so many people on Earth, we, we cannot suspect that we couldn't alter what the natural environment is. But the choices we have are, to what degree do we alter it? How do we alter it? But in terms of answering that question, we have to do that fishery by fishery, region by region, so that in order to sustain a harvest for future generations, we need to be setting a level of, of human activity and fishery harvest, both recreational and commercial, that allows these fisheries to survive and thrive so that future generations can have them with the level of plenty that we might enjoy them today. There are often times when issues with which we w- would hope there would be no room for politics uh, find themselves as partisan political issues. We've seen this with COVID over the past year uh, and now the vaccines. But for even a longer time, we've also watched climate change become sometimes a real political football. What contributes to the skepticism and even derision between politicians, some politicians, and scientists? It's certainly a complex question and arises at multiple levels. I think the first point is that science, once settled, needs to be communicated clearly to the public so the public can understand it. And I think the climate community, the climate science community, has done that reasonably well. In fact, in some cases, remarkably well. The challenge then becomes, what policies are invited once we understand and accept the science? And in some cases, those policies might be scary to some people who have significant investments in, for example, the status quo of our energy production in this country, or the world, or the status quo in the way that our markets are formed. So in lieu of accepting the change in what may be described as a larger public good, a more local good or benefit is sought. And people then, in the policy debate, look at what alternatives there might be to the solution that the science may be leading to. And what we've seen is is rather, at times, disingenuous. Rather than, well, in realizing that one can't debate the science because it is remarkably well settled, then people try two things policy alternatives, or to attack the science. And as we've seen, whether it's cigarette smoking, whether it's um, acid rain, or climate science, attacking the science is not successful in a sound, rational discussion. And the alternative, then, is to put some doubt into the science. And people have made a seeming industry out of that. So it's basically policy not liking where the science is telling us we have to go, and choosing to generate discourse over that where the science itself is really not capable of being challenged because it is remarkably well proven and remarkably settled. So how has this dynamic impacted the trust between the general population and organizations such as NOAA or the National Weather Service? We're in a unique position in NOAA. I think we are widely trusted and we're very proud of that. And we have withstood the challenges to that trust with a very resounding and quick action in order to dispel the spurious nature of of questions that have been raised on the science. We try to explain it very soundly. 
the importance of the public trusting the voice of NOAA, which, as I mentioned earlier, includes the National Weather Service. We need the public to trust that daily weather forecast or that weekly forecast or the movement of severe storms, tornadoes, hurricanes. And the public needs to know that, number one, they can trust that word. Number two, how to respond to it. And number three, when to respond to it. So it's it's of absolute importance for us to have that public trust. The way that we try to achieve that is by continuing to be very open, revealing, and public in the manner in which we arrive at or derive those science conclusions, whether it be a fishery forecast, a fishery assessment, assessment of the oceanic environment, or a weather forecast, and in some cases then as well, the climate futures that would await parts of this country by region or by city. So explaining our science carefully is one of the best ways in order to gain the trust of the public to be open, sharing, and explaining everything as much as we possibly can. Opportunities like this one is an excellent opportunity for us to be explaining that. So I thank you for the opportunity as well. Well, we're happy to have you. That is for sure. I'm wondering how we as average citizens, non-scientists, if you will, can have a better understanding of how our environment affects us in our communities. The environmental impact on our communities is something that I believe every citizen can see every day if we just take the time to observe. Are our spring seasons, fall seasons, is the onset happening earlier? Are the seasons lasting longer? There's a lot of community-based information and community intellect in understanding and describing the, the woods. In the area of, for example, your broadcast reach, have a lot of people who really know and understand the outdoors. And folks can look at what has changed over several years, several decades. Those changes are noticeable. So it's not hard to to describe them. It's harder to understand their causation. And that's where science really can come in and help to explain, because merely an observation of a correlation is not conclusive as to the cause of the phenomenon you're looking at. So really having to understand in a scientific and principled way of examining what you see and understanding what its cause is then gives the answer scientifically that we can rely on. So if we're looking at, for example, the the um, effects of climate change, we've looked across the entire spectrum for 50 years to better understand this and realize that the increase of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases is causing temperature change in the atmosphere, but also in the ocean. And that drives weather, that drives weather over time, which is that change we're seeing in climate. So it's far more complicated than I just just gave you in a brief answer, but basically that's the way. Communicate more thoroughly, more richly, and explain to people why what they're seeing is happening. Because people are seeing those changes, no doubt. In the, in the political discussion of climate change, someone will say, I certainly believe in the science. There's a unanimity amongst environmental scientists, that there is something happening. We need to deal with it, but we can't do it all at once and destroy our economy over it. That's one thing you hear. And another thing you hear is, how can the U.S. be the only ones that are on board with this? How can we really do anything unless China comes on board too? I'm not trying to draw you into a, a, a conversation that's purely political, but as a scientist, as an environmental scientist with NOAA, your thoughts on that topic would be really interesting to me. The pace and tempo that the nation pursues in order to affect the changes that would be necessary for us to avoid the, the generation of 
carbon dioxide, greenhouse gases, those elements that are causing the, the difficulty for us now, those are national policy questions that I would say I'm going to stay reserved and just offer the science and then try and enrich the policy discussion to make sure it stays with the facts. But in terms of offering a prescription about the pace and tempo, I think you see with the current leadership and President Biden's executive orders and presidential memoranda that has have been issued for the executive branch, we have some marching orders and we are aggressively pursuing those. And in terms of how fast this can happen, that's really for other parts of the government to debate in the finance side, treasury side, and, and the likes. But our job steadfastly is to keep providing the science and to what greater degrees of resolution we could bring that science down, people will have better information to make those policy choices. As far as the international community is concerned, certainly the United States is not alone. I think there's rather aggressive practices and, and steps that have been taken in, for example, the European Union towards a recognition of the climate crisis, as the president describes it, or the climate global situation. And even in China, we had an incident recently where our survey and detection methods of looking at greenhouse gases realized that there was an increased escapement of CFC-11, which was a refrigerant that had basically been declared non-usable by, by the global community. And we saw an increase in that gas coming from parts of China. And once informed, the Chinese government took action and worked to suppress the release of that. And it turned out they were largely just backyard refrigerants that people were using and um, in such mass that they were escaping and proved detectable by our surveillance methods. And I, when I say surveillance, we're not running around uh, trying to look for bad guys. What we do is look at the global exchange of gases and where we saw this increase in a, in a gas that we had believed was being put out of production, we saw that there was still some indication of it. I was very slight. We measure in parts per trillion, and we were able to see that increase, detect it, and our observatory on top of Mauna Loa in Hawaii, for any of your listeners who have been out to the Big Island in Hawaii, on top of one of the two proud volcanoes that's in, in that Big Island, we have an atmospheric greenhouse gas observing station that's been there since the mid-50s and has been dutifully recording the increased amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and other gases. Yes, I have been there, and I can visualize it as you speak. You're listening to Upstream Downstream, sponsored by the Stubblefield Institute for Civil Political Communications at Shepherd University. Today we are joined by Craig McLean, who is the Acting Chief Scientist for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, better known as NOAA. In case you just joined us, we're discussing the relationship between science and government and how politics can sometimes hinder trust in science. Craig, what more should the government be doing to foster trust in the scientific community that it's not already doing? I would suggest two things, and we're very mindful of each of these. The first is to go local, to have the ability to step into communities and explain to communities what is happening, whether it be by drought, tornadoes, whether it be by seasonal changes that the agriculture community sees or the fishing community offshore, to be engaged locally and explaining what is happening and how well we know it. So that's that's one thing I think that government agencies can do more of. I'm very proud, coming through NOAA, I've been with NOAA since 1981, I'm very proud of the degree to which the NOAA mission areas are engaged with the public. Through the National Weather Service, we have local forecast officers and, and offices, excuse me, where those forecasters have personal relationships with the emergency planners in their surrounding cities, counties, and states. On the fishery side, we're very well distributed up and down the coast and in the Gulf, 
in order to be communicating with the fishers in terms of how to sustain their own businesses and their own fishery. Programs like Sea Grant do the same, where we have community extension agents that are living in the community. And these are people with advanced educations like a PhD or master's degree in the subjects that are relevant. So climate also brings us into those communities and in the heartland of America. We have a program that delivers through knowledgeable people the explanation for why the drought is taking effect or what that climate forecast might look like. And in interesting ways, it's not always intuitive. For example, parts of the western, southwestern desert area may see even drier periods. So when the civic authorities decide to go ahead and change out perhaps a storm sewer or infrastructure or the like, one might be inclined to think, I need a smaller diameter and I could save money on the installation in terms of the, the wastewater piping or the stormwater piping. But the other half of that is when it rains, it's going to rain like a son of a gun, and you're going to need to have a larger diameter. For example, I'm not making a prediction or a forecast, but those are the types of explanatory um, services that the government does and should keep providing. And at NOAA, we're very proud of our ability to know not just the science and the ability to give an assessment of what this climate future is going to look like, but also to work at the community level and explain it to decision makers, to mayors, to uh, community leaders, and emergency managers. You know, because as, as controversial at times or as politically divisive the topic of climate change can be on a, a national or global scale, I certainly think that there isn't a Republican or Democrat out there that wants to not protect the air and water in their own community. So you bring up a really good point by uh, explaining the importance of environmental science and, and, and doing it at a local level, because that's certainly something I would think that we all can agree on. I believe there is agreement. There are very few people that I've dealt with who just outright reject the science that we are very capable of describing, explaining, and defining. And I've actually had conversations with elected representatives who have shared the notion that they understand it, they believe it, but if they go home and tell that to their constituents, they may have a challenge to be reelected. So that brings up an interesting personal debate, political debate, policy debate. The elected officials have a responsibility to lead people. And I'll just offer the question as to whether that means to singularly represent the voice of the people or to go back and tell the people what they need to hear, need to understand, and need to listen to. It may not be what people want to hear, but that's also a part of being, I think, a public official. For me, I'm an employee of the people. For elected officials, they are representatives of the people, and we owe it to our constituents, the citizens, to speak plainly, honestly, and even though not popular, explain to them what they need to know, hear, and understand. That sounds to me like uh, uh, kind of a facts are facts and you can't run from them. I think that's a good way to, to explain it. And if we run from the facts, we, we face a lesser successful society, and we could be inviting on ourselves the types of harms that the efforts to, let's say, for example, promote the unhealthy nature of cigarettes, if that were just paved over, as, as the industries tried to do with these changes, right, pave over the science, ignore the science, and just sustain the effort and direction that we're in, there, were, there would be many more people who are not alive today because of the, the health recovery in stopping smoking. So there's but one example, and I think climate can be the same example. If we don't pay attention to this now, we're facing around the globe and in the United States tipping points 
in the disruption of our ecosystems to the point that what we expect on a daily, seasonal, or yearly, or decadal basis could be very different. We could be watching the migration of what are today uh, certain forests that have a character we're familiar with and watching the character of characteristics of those forests changing. The same with the ocean, where we see the effects in the ocean ecosystem changing as, as widely as 10 times faster than what we have on land. And it's not a simple question of a latitudinal migration where today's American fish will be tomorrow's Canadian fish. It's, it's that, but it's also the disruption of that marine ecosystem to the point where whatever future state awaits us as it is rapidly changing now, we have to get ahead of that and try and understand what it's going to look like so we could forecast whether New Bedford or whether Portland, Maine, or whether some of these other cities, um, Ocean City, Maryland, whether there will be prosperity to the communities based on the fishing activities they have today, based on the farming activities inland, and just how all this will change. And and I would imagine, too, Craig, that what happens here, that if some of these things were to, to occur, there's really not very much opportunity to turn back and correct them, are there? Well, that really brings up then the question of how do we adapt, how do we mitigate? Because we cannot remove, with current technology, we can't take the carbon dioxide and the greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere in order to let Earth's temperature stabilize and, and normalize. Obviously, we're continuing to produce carbon dioxide. So to adapt and to have mitigation standards, for example, many people may not realize it, but when when some of your listeners might journey to the lakes that, that really populate the, the area around Shepherdstown and, and the university, the river, or even farther east going out to the Chesapeake Bay or, or to the ocean, the marine space, the marine, the marine grasslands and mangroves in the tropics and, and the coastal waters, they can take up more carbon dioxide than an arboreal forest can per acre. And that's pretty remarkable, but the surface area, the density of bacteria, the complexity of that ecosystem, which science has studied, diagnosed, and understands, can see that what we call blue carbon, where it's water-based and aquatic and marine, can take up more carbon dioxide than a forest can per, per unit area. And when we decide to, for the convenience of my backyard, perhaps, dredge and fill and put in a bulkhead so I can tie my boat up to my backyard, that loss is, is more exacerbating than removal of, of a number of trees. So these are things that we need to be considering. And by educating people to these, these observations and these realities, people can make better and more informed decisions and enhance the prosperity of the country, not, not compromise it. And, and not change the opportunities of the future. You mentioned that uh, the Biden administration is giving some new marching orders uh, to NOAA and to other entities in the government as it relates to environmental issues. Could you sum up the, the changes? He's been in office at the time of this recording, about 100 days, uh, and uh, others will listen to this program later on, I'm sure. But what are some of the more significant changes? Within this first 100 days, there's been a remarkable resurgence of faith in, in government from inside the agencies, believing that our national leaders have our backs and support what we're doing and want us to be successful, rather than what we may have experienced previously, which is a, a uh, suppression of science or an alteration of science direction. 
This is an administration, as President Biden has plainly stated, that supports scientific integrity, which is of huge importance to NOAA, and we stand for that. We have one of the strongest scientific integrity policies in government as a federal agency. We're proud of it. It has worked for us several times, and we're glad that we've emerged from a few challenges with not only that integrity policy intact, but also now having a president that supports each of the attributes that's contained in our policy, and we find great comfort realizing what we're doing is exactly what the president wants each of the other federal agencies to do. But further to that, the the move to bring the United States back into the Paris Agreement to show global leadership of the United States, for the United States to regain its platform and position as the global leader is of huge importance. In the ocean community that I work in, I see on a plain and steady basis that if the United States doesn't lead, no one else will, and therefore no one else does follow. And with U.S. leadership, we can create an opportunity for many nations in global challenges, climate is one of them, to join and go in a positive direction. And and that is something that we as Americans are quite used to. We're quite used to showing the way. And this is something that I think the current administration's policies are doing quickly. So we're rounding up 100 days here. Actually, we've passed 100 days at the time of this recording, barely. And I think it's remarkable what changes have taken place already. We're looking at equity and the equitable distribution of federal services. We're trying to make our government more inclusive and represent the diversity of this country in the face and character of the federal employees. I see that happening with with great effort and also bringing into focus this climate crisis, as the president has described it in his executive order. Our, Our nation and our agency are right at the ready in order to be doing this. We've done quite a bit of work already, and I do anticipate that we'll see a lot of the fruits of this coming out. You may have also seen in the news that, at least for our agency, there's a significant budget increase. I would argue that our small agency, NOAA, has probably been confined to, well, I'll characterize it this way. We're about a $12 billion agency trapped in a $6 billion budget. And when you consider that we have to pay for the National Weather Service, satellites that monitor the Earth, oceanography and ships and airplanes and many other assets, we cost the public about a nickel a day for for what we provide. And for each of those services provided, I think that's a pretty good bargain. But we're, we're facing the opportunity of expanding our budget footprint, which I think we need in order to provide the full suite of services the public needs at this time. One final question, and I'm going to have to ask you to be brief, unfortunately. The goal of the Stubblefield Institute is to promote civil discussion of topics that are generally handled poorly. I mention that because the issue of science, such as climate change, as we've already discussed, can result in passion and even vitriolic debate. How can we learn, those of us who want to express opinions, how can we learn to better come together and discuss issues as important as climate change in a way that doesn't end up in a table getting overturned somewhere? I think organizations like the Stubblefield Institute and Shepherd University's dedication to that purpose are ideal to have a dispassionate, objective conversation and to be excluding the emotion of the subjects and only include the fact-based discussions, having patience to listen to the counterpoint and not to judge the person as anything less than a, a respected colleague when you hear that counterpoint and try and evolve to a more common understanding of each party's views. But I commend the Institute, and I appreciate the opportunity to be with you here today.
And I am afraid that's all the time that we have. Craig McLean, thank you so much for being with us today. I know how busy you are and for taking the time to talk with us today. I should just like to throw in here as well that you happen to be a, a former colleague of Bill Stubblefield, and some of our listeners might like to know that, that Bill was an admiral with NOAA for many years. I'd also like to thank our producer, Sarah Burke, and our associate producer and editor, Bianca Eisen. I'm David Welch. Until next week, we'll be back with the next edition of Upstream Downstream. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Upstream Downstream, presented by the Stubblefield Institute for Civil Political Communications at Shepherd University. To learn more about the Stubblefield Institute or to become a friend of the Institute, please go online to stubblefieldinstitute.org.